Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the wizarding world. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. On today's episode, we are discussing Chapter 20 of Order of the Phoenix, Hagrid's Tale. But first, we have a couple pieces of muggle mail to address. First of all, Eric, you upset some people last week with your librarian comments. (laughs) Always making trouble. Last (sighs) week was no different. Letizia wrote in, librarians most definitely should have a seat at the professor's table. I've listened to your podcast for many years. I feel compelled to right now to set the record straight about secondary school faculty. Librarians are teachers. Yes, they manage a room full of books, but they also collaborate with classroom teachers, ensuring students have the right sources, prints, and electronic for students to complete assignments. Librarians teach students how to do proper research. Not everything is Googleable. And librarians guide and advise students on reading selections, how to cite sources, and assist with technology. Librarians have been portrayed rather poorly in the scant amount of movies and books. Please don't put Madame Pince in the same category as Felch. <laughs> librarians in public schools have master's degrees. Librarians at the college level often have two masters and, in many cases, a PhD. Proud Ravenclaw. Let me so you were joking, right? I, I was absolutely joking. <laughs> I was talking about uh, the actress and and not recognize her at first, always assuming she was sinister. I have the utmost respect for librarians. It's but it's but it's really true. I have some close friends that are librarians, um, but I just think it's wildly inconsistent who gets to be at the Hogwarts high table, and you see Hagrid up there before he's even a teacher. So there's a little bit of like weird leeway there as far as who gets to be at the high table um which may have led to my confusion but i just want to flat out apologize if anyone was offended by my comments this is just a lighthearted email we don't have to take it too seriously okay um, <laughs> i do think there's some weird favoritism that happens at hogwarts mm-hmm. and it's a lot to get into but it could be a really good bonus muggle cast so something mm-hmm. for us to keep in mind totally agree with everything that's been said in this email however downplaying argus filch and his role now are we going to get a bunch of emails from those who are responsible for the upkeep of schools and institutions yeah, custodians <laughs> are people too yeah exactly they work extremely they're not hard in their job because they like couldn't yeah i mean they're the hardest working people in my high school guaranteed yeah and they work long hours at night all alone in the dark it's kind of sad mm. you wouldn't probably even want to touch some of the things that they find in the stairwells oh god but filch is kind of a bad person so i don't think we should really defend him either but do we know madam pence really well, she's a librarian. All librarians are wonderful people. With two master's degrees. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> we also have this voice memo from Robert about Harry and Draco. Hi, Mugglecasters. I'm calling about episode 455, and particularly when Eric suggested okay. that the bullying of, by Draco of Harry would invalidate any possible slash fiction about a relationship between them. Actually, this is one of the oldest tropes in rom-coms. And shows up very frequently where two characters who can't stand each other wind up falling in love. Most famously in a movie called The Shop Around the Corner, remade as You've Got Mail and also the musical She Loves Me. And it just happens that there is currently a movie streaming on Hulu called The Thing About Harry, which is exactly this setup where two guys who were in middle school together, one bullying the other, wind up 
in a relationship. Yeah, I went on a date with one of the co-stars of that movie. And it still hurts that he became a major star on Grey's Anatomy. But anyway, <laughs> this is actually what happened to Laura and I once. You know, in the early days, we hated each other and then we fell in love. Yep. So it happens in the real world, too. And then there were certain other discoveries made that, like, <laughs> inter- interrupted that love. <laughs> See, 30 seconds ago when Andrew's talking about the guy from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Also, Eric, I didn't realize you had such a rough week last week. I thought it was a great episode. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad people are listening. You know, that's that's all I hope for. Ever. Mike is calling it a great episode because Eric's getting attacked. <laughs> he loves when Eric gets attacked. Genuinely, I love the feedback because it allows me to grow. And yeah, yeah of I, course. I think course. Draco was just especially bad last week. That's all. I didn't really, we didn't talk about this more in the chapter by chapter discussion, but they do get along in Cursed Child and they work together to find their sons. And I think it signals that they were able to find some peace with each other. Yeah. Were they best friends suddenly? No, but there was some resolution there. Yeah. And and definitely Draco's arc in Half-Blood Prince really tur- like helps him to turn the corner into being a more um, reasonable human being. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think also the fact that Narcissa saves Harry's life probably has something to do with it as well Mm. yeah yeah for sure all right so before we get into chapter by chapter just want to mention that we are now halfway through the book eric noticed this i can't believe we're halfway through already actually (laughs) yeah (laughs) this time is flying reading this again has this changed how we feel about the book at least for me it's been a while since i read order of the phoenix same for me what the things that stick out most are just how many opportunities Dumbledore would have had to like be prominent and he's not taking them. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, Dumbledore's avoiding Harry as a general overstroke of the book, but it seems like every chapter we're asking the question, where's Dumbledore? Mm-hmm. So that, that definitely is sticking out a lot more. And then Harry's um, bad temper is actually about exactly where I remember it being too. It's, it's not great. Um, I was actually going to say, I remember him being a lot angrier hmm. than he is, maybe because there's still a lot more to come. But right. I don't know. I, I just remember like the running joke with this book has always been, oh, my God, he's so angry. He's so angry. All caps, Harry. Ha ha ha. But he's been able to keep it together for the most part. <laughs> yeah. And especially at this point in the book, angry is not how I would describe him. Mm-hmm. Um, But he gets there. We all know what happens at the end. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I would say it's different reading it for the story, you know, which obviously you do the first time that you read it versus reading it for analysis, Mm. because there's a lot of things that we've talked about over the course of the first half of this book that wouldn't have even dawned on me probably the first time that I was sitting down and reading Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, onward. Let's go to chapter 20, Hagrid's Tale, and we'll start with our seven-word summary. Hagrid returns and fails. Fails or bails? Fails with an F. To Lord. What? I, I'm trying to think of what oh. to do. <laughs> All I heard was word. <laughs> uh... Reveal lies. Fails to reveal lies. There we go. I would have said everything. I you got for 
the linchpin is fails. I don't know what he fails to do in this chapter. Keep quiet. The funny thing is, <laughs> as every week, there's somebody in our MuggleCast patrons Facebook group who asks the fellow patrons to owl rate uh, the OWL grades, uh, our seven word <laughs> oh, <no>. summary. <laughs> what did it receive? Not yet. It just happened. But oh. yeah, Pat, previous ones have gotten acceptable. I think there may have been an exceeds, but yeah, not sure. I say troll, troll across level. the board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hagrid is back. Everybody get excited. Woo-hoo! It was the only good thing that happened really at the end of the last chapter. But I think this is a little bit questionable on the part of the trio, given everything that has just happened in the prior chapter, to throw on the invisibility cloak and run down to Hagrid's hut. Hmm. Did they not learn anything? given the punishment that Umbridge had just handed down. Oh, yeah. It is surprising, but they see Hagrid as one of their best friends at Hogwarts, and given how long he's been away, I think they have reason to... I think I think it makes sense that they wouldn't even be thinking about their recent punishment. They just want to go down there and see where the hell he's been. It is a bit reckless. They're, they're not really taking the precautions they should be to go and do this. It's It's like... It's like him being back is such a desperate, like they they so desperately need like to see him and see a friend and have a friend and have their friend back that they aren't smart about it. And I do blame Dumbledore to some extent because I feel as if to the point about having a friend, if he was there for them to listen, especially given everything that's just gone on, then they wouldn't feel the need immediately to jump. Although maybe they would, because there is an excitement about the fact that Hagrid hasn't been seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, there's no way the trio can still fit together under the invisibility cloak. <laughs> I know J.K. Rowling notes that Ron has to crouch because he's getting tall, but still, three people under one blanket? I always got the impression that the cloak was larger than like an average personal cloak would be. Hmm. Just because of them constantly being able to use this, you know, even at age 15. But then, if it's so large, when it's just one person, it would be so baggy and it'd be flowing on the floor behind you like a... Like a bride's dress, and you could be tripping over it. What's the What's the word for those uh, blankets you wear with the sleeves? Snuggy. Snuggy. Thank you. <laughs> I, I wanted to say ShamWow. That was something else entirely. Yeah, Snuggy. I always pictured it kind of like a invisibility Snuggy. Yeah. <laughs> so Hagrid can't tell the trio what he's been up to, despite their pleas. Although it doesn't take a whole lot of convincing on the part of Harry uh, to make him spill the beans. But I think that begs the question, why wouldn't Hagrid share where he's been, what he's been up to? Does he not trust, especially this group of people? I think we've seen this before, and it has to do with how Hagrid, how seriously Hagrid takes all these missions from Dumbledore. He just he just seems to be like he he is told to keep it to himself because, let's face it, Hagrid's a bit of a blabbermouth, right? You give him a few drinks, you take him to a pub, and he'll tell you how to get past Fluffy. Um, I think that Hagrid, on his own road to self-betterment, is just really trying to be a little bit more tight-lipped, probably because Dumbledore has asked him right. uh, to be. Exactly. But he he flips when he hears that Harry has had some interesting stories that he could share as well. Yeah. I just love that Hagrid can't 
keep up his guard. Like we see this numerous times throughout the Harry Potter books. Because Dumbledore asked, it's good that he tried, but he just can't <laughs> resist because he wants to know what the kids are up to. An eye for an eye. Yeah. And, and you know, they don't lead with, we are in the order now. Or, you know, like, they could probably, I guess I can see them trying to persuade Hagrid by saying, you know, we stayed at the headquarters all summer. We're, you know, one of you. You can tell us. And in all fairness, Harry doesn't really get a chance to share much of his story outside of telling him that he was expelled because I think Hagrid had a much different reaction to Umbridge showing up had he known everything that she'd done to Harry over the course of these last couple of months. Definitely. Oh, yeah, for sure. He would have killed her. <laughs> Fang could have just licked her face until she... Uh, yeah. I, don't know. I do wonder if Hagrid doesn't trust the kids, though. I feel he really should at this point. They've been through a lot. They've been able to keep secrets that Dumbledore asks them to keep. It's not like they leak stuff. <laughs> so why not talk to the kids about it? Well, this isn't a particularly touchy subject either, is it? I went to the Giants to see if they could be on our side during this upcoming fight. Well, I think that Hagrid has always placed a great deal of stock in Dumbledore's opinion and sort of Dumbledore's trust in him. Um, that's really valuable to him. And I think also we've seen a few examples throughout the series of Hagrid trying not to tell the kids too much because they're kids. So he knows that he shouldn't, but then he just gets carried away and ends up telling them way more than he should. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's also a history of them misusing the information he gives them or like he knows that they he even says it in this chapter that they're up to like they concern themselves with this stuff that they ought not to meddle in far too often. And so if he tells them this, even though it's seemingly innocent information, they're going to like, they could mount a quest now to go visit the giants if it was something that the plot of the book wanted them to do. Um, they're exactly the kind of kids who would go and do that and say, well, Hagrid failed at this, but we can do better. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's some of the hesitation. And as he's recounting his tale, at least the first part of it, we get a, a sense of where he's been, and, and it seems like actually a, a pretty interesting trip to start. He's he's evading ministry <laughs> officials. He's watching out for Death Eaters, uh, but he, of course, does find himself, as only Hagrid would, in a pub at some point during this trip. <laughs> and uh, to answer last week's Quizage question, Hagrid had a slight disagreement with a vampire in a pub in Minsk. And mm -hmm. the giants that they come across are in Russia? Is that true? Uh, you'd have to do a map. All those countries are real close together in the mountains. I think several countries share mm. a mountain range. They like cross Poland. They go through Belarus. Um, it, it makes sense. It's in that. It's definitely in like the Eastern European area. Mm. All right. But this brought up the question, what do we know about vampires in the Harry Potter series? Yeah. There is that occasional reference, but we don't get a whole lot. So Harry meets Sanguini in Half-Blood Prince at Slughorn's party. But yeah, we don't get a lot. And 
I forgot that J.K. Rowling actually wrote a little bit on vampires for Potter No More. This was back in August 2015. This lives on on uh, WizardingWorld.com. She said, The vampire myth is so rich and has been exploited so many times in literature and on film that I felt there was little I could add to the tradition. In any case, vampires are a tradition of Eastern Europe. And in general, I tried to draw from British mythology and folklore when creating adversaries for Harry. So that's why she does name check them a few times throughout the series. But I did find that interesting that she was like, you know what? Everybody's done a good enough job with vampires. I don't need to add anything here. Right. It's kind of nice of her to to just acknowledge they exist and to place them generally where we would expect uh, them to be placed and then move on. Mm hmm. but that Sanguini, we mentioned this on our recent chapter reread of uh, that Slug Club chapter, but uh, Sanguini seemed to be eyeing some of the female students quite hungrily, as I recall. And that's a little, that makes me nervous. Hungry for what? Mm, the blood. The blood. And it's kind of it's kind of funny that J.K. Rowling wrote that, you know, vampire stuff, it's been done a lot. Meanwhile, uh twilight comes up in popularity (laughs) like a couple of years later just (laughs) blows people out of the water not necessarily because they're well i guess the vampire angle was very important but it was the romance that really uh made that that was the immediate successor to harry potter wasn't it was yeah it was Mm -hmm. yeah that's so funny did any of you buy into the snape as a vampire theory by the way no i i didn't either i kind of did I um I definitely wanted to see it happen, but not for the least that in the last book he like leaves like a bat. Sh- he turns doesn't he turn into a bat and escape? Well, he does fly away. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, or at least in the movie he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot to that theory outside of his appearance. No, from what I remember, unless there were clear cut examples where he wouldn't go out in the daytime. I know that people would say, oh, his classroom. Well, he did suck Harry's blood in book three. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sirius calls him a, an overgrown bat at, at one point. She definitely yeah. fanned the flame, I would say. like This was, this was something that Rowling took and, and had a little bit of fun with, mm-hmm. um, as is her prerogative. Yeah, Rowling says sometimes he's described as looking like a large bat in his long black cloak. He never actually turns into a bat. We meet him outside the castle by daylight and no corpses with puncture marks in the necks ever turn up at Hogwarts. He's also very pale, though, isn't he? He has a very pale complexion, too. Yeah, that too, for sure. And that hook nose and the long hair. He looks like a vampire for sure. You know what, though? I have a pale complexion. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you telling us? (laughs) I'm just saying, draw your own conclusions. And you do stay up late into the night. I do. Yeah. Do you see my tweet at three o'clock in the morning? Is that what you're referring to? No, no. <laughs> I just know that you do. Mm-hmm. Now I have to look for this tweet. Oh, oh yeah. There's Laura getting political in the middle of the night again. <laughs> it would be fun to know what the disagreement was about. You know, I mean, let's, let's imagine this scene, right? You have Hagrid, <laughs> who's a half giant and a vampire mm-hmm. conversing in a pub they're probably a little bit tipsy. Maybe they had some fire whiskey. Mm-hmm. And who knows what they're arguing about? Yeah, I agree. This is something that is destined to be drawn up or, I don't know, explained in fan fiction. Like, I just, because the, the mental image is funny. It's just very humorous. And seeing, you know, this half giant and this, I imagine, 
sort of a diminutive vampire keeping to himself, and they manage to a disagreement to have a disagreement with. Yep, absolutely. So I also think it's important to mention that Hagrid is traveling with Madame Maxime. So I wonder if she's in the bar there too, just kind of sitting in the corner, shaking her head. Hagrid. There he goes again, fighting with the other types. <laughs> well, we eventually get to the part of the story about the giants and their interactions with them. And we learn that the giants live in seclusion. And Hagrid says that it's really our fault. It was the wizards who forced them to go and make them live a good long way from us. And they had no choice but to stick together for their own protection. So this is a bit sad this group that's been forced to live on their own in seclusion following this wizarding war. And it seems like this probably has a bit to do with the ministry. Yeah, because oh, definitely they forced them out of town during the first wizarding war. And the giants, I mean, the giants were on Voldemort's side, so they kind of deserved it. I think, too, it's because of it's predominantly because of the statute of secrecy, right? You need to control, you know, these muggles um, from seeing. You got to prevent them from seeing the giants. And Hagrid even says there used to be tribes of giants all over the world. Um, but now it's not that way. And I think it's largely due to the wizard's decision to prevent muggles from being aware of their existence. Yeah. And I wonder, are they on Voldemort's side in the first war because of what he promises them? Or are they just basically coerced into supporting him? Mm. I think they're both of those things could probably be true. And I think also when you have any kind of population that is, um, you know, underrepresented and treated poorly, they'll tend to respond to whoever wants to give them something good, right? So like with the giants, they're looking at the wizards and they're like, we don't have any dog in this fight because y'all have treated us like crap right? the entire time. But then maybe Voldemort comes up and starts giving them really lavish gifts or maybe he starts making promises to them um, you know, and really taking advantage of sort of their place in this society mm -hmm. to make them feel like, you know, they might get something special out of the arrangement. Right. Which yeah, they clearly special. don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, maybe Voldemort promised he's going to clear their student loan debt. And <laughs> well, they just fell in love with that idea. <laughs> clear their That's student loan debt through a tax on ministry speculation. Maybe. Sure. That was a joke, of course, because there's no uh, tuition at Hogwarts and presumably other wizarding schools. Oh. Remember J.K. Rowling said that once? Yep. And like, then everybody wow, was Hogwarts like, just... how is this sustained? <laughs> <laughs> Joe's was talking crazy. The normal way, though, right? Through taxes. <laughs> we need to ask her if there's taxes in the wizarding world. Mm. That's a legitimate question, though, though. She'll probably be like, no. <laughs> well, it's post-scarcity because magic helps you duplicate you know, pretty much everything. Yeah, just make money. Is there a spell to make money? No, probably not. Otherwise, the Weasleys wouldn't be poor. Oh. Right. <laughs> oh. But could could a giant go to Hogwarts? Probably not. No. Security nightmare and all that. Dumbledore would totally let a giant go. You know, Dumbledore's relationship with the giants is a very interesting one. Dumbledore 
is a guy who knows a lot about a lot of stuff, but it is under his orders that both Olymp, uh, Maxime, and Hagrid go and are told exactly what to do. Like, even though he's confirmed a Goblet of Fire, right? That Maxime has giant blood. Does she say mm-hmm. it's like a direct parent or like kind of a more distant thing? Do you remember? Well, I think Hagrid asks which of her parents it was and she gets very offended. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it's pretty telling. Mm. So, but, but regardless, it is, it's this outsider in Dumbledore who like helps them know what to do when they get to the giants. And I, I assume it helps that they look bigger than most regular people that the giants are like, Oh, something's going on here. Like you're not just wizards. I think it makes sense to have envoys who are blood related um, just to ease the tension a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And and we can talk a little bit more about that. But just going back to the point of communities being forced to live in seclusion. It just made me think about the Native American populations here in uh, Northern America. We, in a lot of ways, have forced them out. And it's really sad. And now there's, you know, there's still battles today over, you know, building pipelines, for example, through Native American lands or building a wall down along the Mexican border and and tearing up ancient burial sites. Like, <laughs> that was horrible. It's still happening today. Yeah. And I, I think that comparison can be applied um, more broadly to indigenous populations around the world because this mm-hmm. kind of thing happens to indigenous groups everywhere. Um, even down to, you know, Hagrid talks about how there used to be all of these tribes and there used to be so many of them, but they've been forced into seclusion and it has ultimately resulted in their death. And indigenous populations all over the world are dying out because this very thing, because of governments, you know, forcing them to live in, you know, sort of these, at least here in the States, it's reservations, right? Um, and it's, you know, you looked at them at one point having so much land and such vast populations. But when you force people into a corner, that's not a sustainable way of life. So it also is why that they are so hesitant to receive outsiders. And mm-hmm. we see that when Hagrid and Madame Maxime show up, the approach to them is that they need to wait a certain period of time before even going down and presenting them with these gifts that they've brought. And when they do so, they're carrying it above their head. It's it's almost like a negotiation mm-hmm. tactic that you would see with like law enforcement, right? You know, when you approach a scene that's highly there's a lot of tension, right? A lot of times at least on television, I'm not saying this happens in real life. <laughs> Detective Micah has some stories. No, no, but as you approach the scene, right, usually what do cops always do? They they show their weapon or they put mm-hmm. down their weapon as a sign of you know, wanting to really engage with whomever they're trying to talk down. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want to make it violent. Yeah. And that's kind of what's going on here. Right. In this with holding the gift up, they're like, focus on the gift. <laughs> Not that half giants are holding it. Not that everyday wizards are holding it. Just focus on the gift. Well, and that these giants are, what, 25 feet tall. Um, Mm -hmm. They could probably kill Hagrid and Maxime with a flick of their, 
you know, if, they, if they're not careful, uh, a simple kick or punch or a simple blow from one of these giants who might not even be thinking about it to like kill them could injure them very severely. One of the questions that I thought about reading this chapter was what's the value of aligning with the giants? If they're a depleted population that seemingly want to be left alone, why even waste the time in approaching them? Well, two things. If Dumbledore doesn't get them, then the other side will, and he probably knows that Voldemort is pursuing them. Mm. So it's better that they're on the good side. And two, I mean, just from a physical standpoint, they are giant and can kick some serious ass. So they are good to have on your side. Yeah, I definitely think it is the part of the other side is doing it, so we have to, um, because the Death Eaters could re- if if left alone, could really have, um, I don't know, really swayed them. And we do see, I think, some giants in the end getting to Hogwarts. But uh, the other thing that I think as far as what was gained, Hagrid seems to really be content with just that some of the giants uh, know Dumbledore's name and know that Dumbledore was like, an alternative mm-hmm. like knowing that there is an alternative out there no matter how distant by the time anybody gets to hogwarts dumbledore has died uh by the time any of the giants get there so i don't really know what the point is but maybe it was just that they know there's an alternative to the death eater side of doing things and because ultimately the death eater is siding with the gurg who is now murdering a lot of his own people do we think that the Death Eaters sort of propped up this new Gurg and encouraged him to kill Carcass and and all of these other giants? Probably, because killing is what they are going to want them to do Mm -hmm. when in the war with the wizards. So they're probably going to back the most violent of them all. And if if they, the Death Eaters, caught wind of Dumbledore pursuing the giants, then maybe they wanted to create some chaos within the group so that there was less of a chance that Dumbledore would be able to woo them. And if that's true, it worked. (laughs) I could even see them wanting to create enough chaos to further wipe out the population so that they can't be used at all. Mm. And by the way, this story on a whole is just a great example of the good guys not always winning. I actually really like that J.K. Rowling wrote this whole tale about them trying to pursue the giants and it was basically all for nothing i mean there's a grop storyline to come but other than that they did lose this fight with the death eaters and voldemort i agree yeah they they really did and it's kind of also a lesson to the consequences of you know bringing that gift that that galbraithian fire that they led with for instance is a really cool gift and props to dumbledore for being able to create such a thing but in- interference from Death Eaters aside, just he who pr- who has that prized possession, people are going to seek it. It's kind of like the story of the unbeatable wand mm-hmm. later on. It's like if you have the coolest gift, people are going to covet that and they're going to want that. And that's just human or in this case, giant nature, I think. Mm-hmm. That would win me over. Right? Some everlasting fire. Yeah. You know what people love in vacation rentals, particularly out west? fire pits. Turn it on, just stare at the fire. Yeah. I think that this is also a good example um, and can be applied to sort of real life cases 
of people assuming that they know what certain communities need um, without sort of thinking about what the impact might be sort of that like intention versus impact, like my intent was good, but the ultimate impact of what I did actually made things worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something we see a lot when people sort of think they know what to do to help groups of people instead of listening to what those groups of people need or want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, I thought that with this whole gift exchange that Hagrid is blowing his load right from the start, right? He's putting his best <laughs> gift forward as not as the first gift, right? Like, well, maybe you need that. Do you give the the, you have the best gift on the first night of Hanukkah? No, you wait until the end. <laughs> I think it's really important to lead with at least your second best gift because oh yeah, okay, lead with the helmet. Uh, but I, I did want to touch on something. I, I would add another group to uh, Andrew, what you were talking about before, and that's the ministry. I think that the ministry played a very large role in this, maybe even to the extent that we don't really know about. We know that they're tailing Hagrid and Madame Maxime in the early part of their journey, but I find it highly coincidental that the Death Eaters show up around the same time that Hagrid is taking this trip. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the ministry somehow through Umbridge or through Lucius Malfoy is not, you know, tipping off these Death Eaters to go to the same neck of the woods that Hagrid is. Yep. And Umbridge makes it very clear here in a few minutes later in the chapter that she knows what Hagrid's been up to. Oh, right. Yep. There's your proof. Mm. Now, is Hagrid truly the best envoy? He's not the cleverest. And I'm not sure he's the best negotiator if it came down <laughs> to it. And maybe that's why Madame Maxime is there. But I just I just question Hagrid being the best person for this job. Physically, he's best suited. They can try to break him in half, but it's going to be tougher than it is to break a uh, normal human being. Yeah, he's a natural envoy to the giants. It's, it's, it's like sending... Uh, anyone other than Remus Lupin to the werewolves. It's outsiders are not viewed sympathetically uh, for good reasons. But they seem to have had the most success, outsiders with the giants. Clearly, McNair and others were able to convince Golgamath to do what he did. Yeah, but the movie version of McNair is a really tall dude too. <laughs> yeah, but he's an executioner. He's not a giant. No, yeah, it's 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 true. It's it's definitely whatever tactic the Death Eaters are employing does seem to work a a I would say considerably better than what Hagrid and Maxime are doing. But I don't know that Dumbledore could have sent anybody else that would have been better other than Dumbledore himself. But this is just the situation. I, it kind of feels like Dumbledore is just so spread, so thin, running, you know, every aspect of the order he's, really i mean he's not he's not in the first half of this book so he could easily go to the giants yeah so he might as well be he's busy though that's why he's not in the first half of the book what okay. do you think he's sitting around watching tv <laughs> <laughs> we'll learn what he was up to in a future spin-off book i'm sure and or television adaptation but i think hagrid actually proves himself as a great candidate to go and speak to the giants here mm-hmm. he does follow dumbledore's directions very carefully and he did have some of the giants convinced. But speaking of Dumbledore 
is he a bit reckless in his approach? He does end up getting Carcass killed as well as members of another giant family once the Death Eaters really start to have some influence on Golgamath. It, it, it's sad, right? Hagrid and Maxime come across this cave of, of giants who seemingly would have been on their side. And, and in the end, they end up getting killed. So I, I wonder if Dumbledore ended up creating more trouble than would have normally happened as a result of all of this. You know, I was just wondering, and I feel like this would be very Dumbledore, if the whole motivation behind this mission was to distract the Death Eaters. Yeah. And sort of spread their forces thin. Like, if we sort of like, with, you know, a wink, say like, oh, yeah, Hagrid's gonna be away for a couple months, don't worry about what he's doing. Mm. And it becomes very clear to them what he's doing. Suddenly, you have to send a few Death Eaters to follow him. And maybe some folks from the ministry, too. And maybe this was all in an effort to keep all eyes off of Dumbledore, or at least to make it a lot harder to monitor Dumbledore and all of the people who he has connections with. Given that giants die from this, I would hope that it's not so reckless that it's just a distraction. Yeah, I think it's a genuinely like it would be a really good thing if giants did join the good side or at least refuse to fight for Voldemort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. So I I think it's valuable. Absolutely. And and I think it also goes back to the fact that the order as a whole is becoming more and more isolated given everything that's going on with the ministry. So the more folks that they can rally to their cause while all this is happening, while the ministry is in denial – is important because mm-hmm. once the ministry finally gets on the same page as Dumbledore and the order, it's too late. So I had to laugh at a lot of these giant names uh, that we get. I, there, a lot of them are, I forget what the, the literary technique is, but they're, it's almost onomatopoeia, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the giant named Carcass, uh, who is quickly killed and <laughs> is lifeless body also sometimes called a carcass is discarded to the bottom of a local lake it's mm. it's really funny um grop actually carcass carcass fred dead i see what you're it? saying but gogamath is possibly derived from the number google we're all familiar with google it's one with a hundred uh one to the hundredth power ten to the hundredth power it's a single digit one with a hundred zeros afterwards. So this is a huge number. So JK Rowling names the biggest giant this biggest number, basically. Hmm. It's just fun, fun little linguistic uh, joking that, that JK Rowling's doing here. There's a bit in here about the actual battles between these giants. And I got to imagine that makes a lot of noise when these giants are fighting each other, which makes sense that they're up in the mountains because imagine you're on vacation you know, you're up in the cabin in the mountains of, I did look up, it is, it is supposedly in Russia. But let's imagine you're there on vacation, maybe, you know, Sarah Palin's just across the way. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, you hear these really loud, thunderous noises. And and if you're a muggle, you can't see this, right? So yeah, it's got to be kind of You might odd think when, it's a volcano when, or an earthquake or like some mining shaft just exploded or... Um, trying to think what else would make a loud noise in nature. 
I do wonder if muggles can see them, though, because Hagrid does talk about how, like, muggle bodies have been found after they discover giants and mm. they just sort of get chalked up to mountaineering that accidents. That would be weird to be eaten by something that you can't even see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why the giants were driven into seclusion in the first place, right? So that you, could, you couldn't just have giants walking around and maintain secrecy. Speaking of Grop, we don't learn anything about what happened to Hagrid's face in this chapter outside of him slapping some dragon meat on it. I hope that wasn't Norberta, by the way. Oh, it's not. How do you know, though? Because we see Norberta. We hear about Norberta in the future tense, don't we? In 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 one of the future books. I think it's book seven. All right. I'm 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 trusting you on that. Yeah, please do. It is a great visual game. He's though. picking this up from a local market. Well, you don't I, know. It, okay, I think it's a valid question. How did Hagrid come up uh, or come upon this uh, dragon meat? I think that's a fair question. That's what took him so long to get back. He had to slay a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> Cut it up, make some steaks. Some go to Grop, some go to Fang. Where was Fang, by the way? He just chilling in the hut the whole time? <sighs> I guess. Who Who babysat Fang? During this, I mean, Dumbledore. It, sh- it should have been the children, but yeah, it might have been Dumbledore. Might have been. That's what Dumbledore's been doing this whole time, <laughs> taking care of Fang. No, I kind of obviously Hagrid doesn't mention Fang on his journey, but I would totally see Hagrid taking Fang with him. I don't know. That's what you do. You t- you take your dog with you. That would be a tasty snack for a giant. <laughs> <laughs> well, they keep Fang away. They don't bring him down to the gift giving. Ceremony. You know, <laughs> that was going to be the third gift. <laughs> maybe, maybe a really good friend of Hagrid's, like pet sat for a few months. Mm-hmm. You know, because clearly Fang was not in the hut the entire time, and Hagrid just got back. Right. Well, maybe he just was. <laughs> maybe it was Newt. Maybe he was just chilling in the Forbidden Forest. It, how about Newt? The dog it is trained. Been, Newt. Newt's still alive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Newt has better things to do than watch somebody's dog. <laughs> Unless he's retired at this point. Probably is. Yeah, I would assume so. Fang would eat the Nifflers. (laughs) (laughs) No, he would just play with them a little bit. And then eat them when he got bored. No. So what do we think the Death Eaters said to Golgamath to convince him to kill Carcass and start to really rally a lot of the other giants to the Death Eaters' cause? Well, I think he would recall what happened during the first Wizarding War. They they drove you guys out. How could you want to side with them this time? Yeah. Stay with us. We'll take them down. You can live wherever you want. I can also see the Death Eaters using Imperius and using magic on the giants that is a, is a lot more subtle. Yeah, I, I can't see the Death Eaters having the same negotiation skill or style that the good side has. Um, I can see them being a little bit more, I don't know, deliberate. And because they're the side of bad... They can give in to the giant's tendencies for infighting and violence. Um, you know, it's it's almost like the work is being done for them when it comes to fighting over the supreme fire and all this other stuff. It's like the Death Eaters barely need to say anything and the giants are on their side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all they needed to do was find the most violent of the giants and say, hey, uh, we would support you being the new Gurg. And you see all those gifts that he's getting right now? You're going to get all of those things. Mm-hmm. Fire. Well, speaking of 
being the new Gurg, the trio said, how do you spot the Gurg? How do you know which one is the Gurg? And Hagrid says, easy. It's the biggest, the ugliest, the laziest. So <laughs> is that just a rule amongst the giants? Like one goes and then the, the next comes in. It's kind of insulting. All right. Here's our new biggest, ugliest and laziest Gurg. You walk up and you're like, hey, ugly. And everybody turns around. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. I think it's just uh, this was like the result, right? That, that that because all the other giants have to get food for mm-hmm. their gurg that it's just by i guess over a period of time that whoever is the gurg becomes the biggest the fattest the laziest ah, i see what you're saying like habitually yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah so just because they yeah. don't do anything around camp everybody provides for them yeah exactly it's so it's not like that's those are the qualities that the uh, giants value it's that that's the aftermath or the repercussions of being the gurg is you they they turn mm. into that figure right yeah yeah sort of like like i'm kind of the gurg here on mugglecast <laughs> like people call me the leader which i don't love but i am definitely the biggest ugliest and laziest <laughs> i will contest you on a few of those things dude okay <laughs> yeah i'd say you're in pretty good shape <laughs> yeah i'm jacked <laughs> I'm jacked, baby. You're you're more like you you watch Game of Thrones, sort of. You remember one one? Nope. No. Well, he was the he was the giant that ended up siding with with Jon Snow. Did you say one one? That's Ron from Harry one. Potter, dude. <laughs> one 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 one. Close enough. Close enough. Yeah, I guess. Oh, I see. Did you look him up? Yeah, yeah. He definitely okay. looks like me. <laughs> Well, from a from a badass standpoint, was what I'm trying to Got say. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the question that I had about Hagrid returning, um, you know, we know that the events of the chapter, the the meeting is interrupted, and Harry can't tell his story because Umbridge comes. But I initially had a lot of questions about again, where's Dumbledore? Wouldn't Hagrid have reported? directly like to Dumbledore, there shouldn't have been an opportunity where the kids can go visit him and Umbridge can go visit him and all these people can go visit, like without him speaking to Dumbledore and doing like a debrief. But then I remembered, and in this chapter it is said like, Hagrid does not take the normal route home. And there is an air of mystery about it. We know that it's because he brought his brother back to the Forbidden Forest that the the normal route of travel and you know he would have been back months ago otherwise he basically disobeyed dumbledore's orders like he he's hagrid's been up to something sneaky and so that i guess essentially is why like, i'm going to let dumbledore off the hook like that's why they haven't debriefed yet is because hagrid took the long way home of his own volition and that is not the plan yeah i would think that Hagrid's first stop would be to Dumbledore. He even mentions that communication, it was near impossible because mm. he w- he was being trailed. And so they couldn't communicate via OWL. There's probably other ways that they could do it. But yeah, uh, uh, but let Hagrid you know, get a good night's sleep in his own bed before he walks up to the castle and, and talks with Dumbledore or that's probably not even a safe place for them to have that conversation. They probably need to do it somewhere in the forest. Well, Dumbledore should come to him though. Like there has to be a way of signaling or, or for Aberforth, you know, for all intents and purposes is a member of the order. Even this early, he's reporting to Dumbledore and everything else. You know, Dumbledore could have said, go to the hogshead and let the barman know that you're there. 
and I will be down in a minute. You know, they really could have planned a better debrief well before Umbridge's prying eyes and ears were, came into play at all. Mm-hmm. What about the Patronus? Don't they communicate that way? They do later, but I don't think Hagrid could conjure one. But doesn't he? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm misremembering. But don't they communicate that way in Goblet of Fire? I wonder. Once when they find Barty Crouch Sr.'s body, doesn't Hagrid send a Patronus to Dumbledore or is it the other way around? It may have been the other way around. J.K. Rowling said Hagrid couldn't produce a Patronus because it's a very difficult spell. Yeah. I mean, I mean we're watching oh, them. so he can only receive one? Well, yeah. Anybody could receive one. Yeah. That's not cool. <laughs> in defense of Hagrid. Well, we're watching them struggle to, to conjure them in Dumbledore's army. Um, and these are, these are wizards with two or more years more experience than Hagrid ever got at school. Mm-hmm. And Hagrid's wand is snapped in half, too. I mean, we know his umbrella like basically works, but I think something about the Patronus charm for how it's lauded and appraised uh, means that Hagrid can't do it. Ashley, who's listening live on Patreon, says maybe Professor Grubbly Plank, p- Puppy Sat Fang. I believe that. Didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk on bridge. Yeah, so Umbridge arrives. She does, unexpectedly. And if you're haggard at this point, you got to be kind of pissed off, right? This is the fourth person to show up on your doorstep since you just got back home. Just got back. Give me a break. Yeah, I hate coming back from a trip and people want to talk to me. No, thank you. (laughs) Especially for how long he's been away and what he went through. I need at least a night to recuperate. Exactly. And she does note the fact that there were footsteps, which we talked about earlier, leading up to the cabin, but none going back to the castle. Yeah. I mean, it was terribly obvious that somebody else was just there. Not just the footprints, but the voices as well. This should have been a moment. I'm actually surprised this didn't happen where Umbridge exposes, you know, utters some spell and the invisibility cloak comes up. Maybe she like does like a wind spell to blow cloaks around. (laughs) Because she must know that an invisibility cloak exists. And this should have been a moment where Umbridge catches the trio and the invisibility cloak gets confiscated because it's just, it's so clear that somebody else is in that hut. Yeah, I I don't think she's a very gifted witch. So I'm not sure that she would have been able to do anything to expose them. Yeah. You know, like all we see her do in this book is be on a power trip and she just uses her authority to implement punishments and things like that but i don't think we ever really see her do anything particularly uh impressive yeah with her magical abilities and maybe also not gifted in a way that would make her actually think that somebody was hiding under a cloak or some other form of of magical invisibility Right. I mean, it's tense because she still searches nearly every square inch mm-hmm. of the place and comes within a couple inches. Harry even has to suck in his whatever gut he has as a 15-year-old uh, so that she doesn't bump into them. Yeah. Yeah. But given the evidence, it is pretty definitive that there's somebody down there. I mean, really, the footprints are are are, are the, the smoking gun. Um, so I'm surprised, like trying to think like if i were on bridge would i like stick my hand out and run around like do do the unexpected because she she does seem to be doing like a more methodical search and if they had needed to the trio under the invisibility cloak could you know slight like walk to the other side of the room when she's over in one corner or 
or just sit there until the people who are hiding reveal themselves. Then she wouldn't have to do any magic. She'd just have to be stubborn. Oh, yeah. So I was wondering, have there been times where Harry has been caught? And next book, obviously, Draco catches him and um, on the train. And that's a really tense scene. But then, Eric, you also found a couple areas where Dumbledore is aware that Harry is using the cloak. But I think the first time that a bad guy actually catches Harry is in the next book, right? Yeah, unless you count Mrs. Norris, I think Draco would be the first one to catch him. But but what Dumbledore is doing, I seem to recall, correct me if I'm wrong, or if you guys remember this, please let me know. You know, back me up. But what I think Rowling actually said that Dumbledore, the reason that it appears as though Dumbledore can see Harry when he's under the cloak or Dumbledore becomes aware of Harry's presence is because he is non-verbally casting the homonym revilio spell that we see a little later on, I think, at Deathly Hallows. Uh, and that that is indicating to Dumbledore, at least, that there's a human in the room. And that that spell is penetrating the cloak. Right. And when he does know that Harry is under the cloak in Chamber of Secrets, he glances their way. J.K. Rowling doesn't write that, you know, Dumbledore stared right at Harry. He, He had been revealed. But Dumbledore does look that way. And that seems to suggest that the spell Hominum Revelio is alerting him to a human presence in a certain direction, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, it's like lighting him up. At least in the movie, in that same scene, Lucius Malfoy reaches out and tries to grasp right. the invisibility cloak. So I wonder, if is that more just because he thinks somebody is there versus knowing that somebody is present? Because it's it's almost a similar type of scene to Chamber of Secrets when Umbridge shows up and tries to catch the trio. Yeah. But I don't think uh, Lucius was doing what Dumbledore was doing. I think, at least in the movie, it was just to create a tense moment. Like, oh my God, he's about to be caught. And, and I still think that it's very impressive that Dumbledore can do this with respect to Harry's invisibility cloak because it is one of the Deathly Hallows. It's not your average invisibility cloak that Dumbledore can detect somebody under or see through if in fact he's able to do that. So, mm-hmm. And there's also this point in here about in book one, Dumbledore knows that Harry has been visiting the mirror even though he's been diligent about wearing the cloak. Yeah. Dumbledore says, quote, I have other ways of making myself invisible. Yeah. That, Creepy. I've always, <laughs> I've always enjoyed that line from Rowling being that it appears in book one. Because you're like, oh, the wide wizarding world, there's so many exciting things we've yet to discover. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that at least in this book, in book five, she introduces the disillusionment charm and kind of how that feels, which is another way of making oneself invisible. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of glad that that thread gets kind of a little bit of a follow up. Yeah. So all in all, I'm just, I actually kind of wish that Umbridge caught them in Hagrid's hut. I think they deserved it for the reasons we've brought up throughout the episode. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's just so obvious that somebody else is there. Like, cover your footsteps or or sneak out the ba- I don't know. Something. Yeah, I, I think this also creates a ripple effect for Hagrid and for the trio down the road because it immediately creates a situation where Umbridge 
doesn't trust Hagrid. And I think we see further educational decrees that are a result of what they are doing right now. Yeah, I, I think so too. And and um, did we want to talk about just how bad Hagrid's, how obvious Hagrid's lies are? Um, <laughs> because unfortunately being put on the spot, I think it's clear to anybody who you know, doubted whether or not Hagrid was telling the truth that he's, it's clear that he's definitely not. Well, I think the only thing that really could be a legitimate situation is the teacup and the fact that Fang knocked it over. That That's believable in my opinion, mm. but the talking and the footprints, he can't really explain away. And the fact that he says that he's been away for his health- <laughs> As he holds a dragon's... Maybe that's yeah. believable. I wonder if he had that prepared or he needed to come up with that on the fly. Because he also should have been warned that somebody was back at the school who was going to be cracking down. He can't really talk with anybody while he's on the move because that would present a risk. But I, Dumbledore should have warned him, I think, right before he got there. Or Dumbledore should have been the one rushing down to see Hagrid as soon as he got back. Yeah. I agree. He's there. He's just invisible. He's watching the whole thing. <laughs> um, Kelly over on our listening live feed does remind us that Mad-Eye Moody, or rather Barty Crouch as Mad-Eye, could see under the cloak as well. Oh, yeah. I do wonder here, you know, Umbridge turning up so quickly. This makes me think that Filch, somebody who is constantly paying attention to what's happening at the school, probably saw footprints in the snow and went and roused Umbridge, which, which would explain why Umbridge got there before, say, Dumbledore did. Because mm. I don't think Felch would go to Dumbledore. No, that's... Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And we know that he's been working on something very special for his return to care of magical creatures. Hermione is definitely not about it <laughs> and is cautioning him She's she's trying. She's trying to caution him and to tell him, look, you mess up, you're going to be out of here real quick. And maybe this is one of the reasons that this scene exists in the first place. So Hermione can become stressed out about Hagrid's lessons because this is the first of a few times where she tries to um, control Hagrid's lessons in fear of him being suspended by Umbridge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And this is also a really convenient point to drop another clue about Thestrals. Yeah. Hagrid says he's been bringing him on for years and that he thinks he has the only domestic herd in Britain. We get to um, see them, so to speak, on Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure at Universal Orlando <laughs> Oh Resort. my God, does that mean we've seen people die? Well, I mean, you <laughs> see where they're supposed to be, but you don't actually oh, see them. that's yeah. cool. Yeah. The voiceover from Robbie Coltrane's like, uh, don't mind the Thestrals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're at the beginning of the ride. Um, and maybe, I, I don't know if somebody brought this up in the Patreon Facebook group or somebody said, wouldn't it be cool? Or maybe I just dreamed this. Wouldn't it be cool to have a Thestral ride at the Wizarding World Park? And then I was thinking, like, how could we do that? Because you would want to sit on top of a Thestral. So would it just be like a glass? Right. Thestral? Right. So, like, you're sitting on something, but you can't see it, you know? But then I was thinking, how could they keep that so clean where it looks invisible? That seems like a great ride idea, in my opinion. Like, you're actually sitting on something, but you can't see it. That's magic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It <laughs> What's well, so funny? 
That would be. Sure. I, I like the idea. It would be a cool ride, especially when they go out over the, the Thames. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In uh, Order of the Phoenix. Well, it reminds me so much of Flights of Passage, though, in Avatar Land, where the beast is mm. breathing underneath your legs. It's awesome. Awesome experience. Mm. All right. I, I think that wraps up this chapter. The trio head back up to the castle and somehow are not caught on their way back <laughs> to Gryffindor Tower. The How cloak, that's possible. The cloak, the cloak, the cloak. I mean, these guys are... These guys are invincible. Well, and the Marauder's Map. Well, I was just going to say, between the cloak and the Marauder's Map, these guys are invincible. They can get away with anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, w- I would think Umbridge would be a little bit better at that than uh, she is, but I-, I assume she went off immediately to report to Fudge, and that's why uh, mm-hmm. they get a free pass back to the Gryffindor common room. This chapter made us wonder, what if Hagrid was lying? What if he actually didn't go to the Giants? What was he really doing? And we thought we would bring back our top 10 list idea from days gone by, but we wanted to change it to seven because, well, why not? (laughs) So Seven is a magical number. Oh, that's the reason. Yeah, thank you. So here are the top seven reasons Hagrid was really missing in action. And thank you to some of our listeners who participated. This first one from Meg Scott. He took a sabbatical to play flute on the Weird Sisters' 1995 world tour. (laughs) (laughs) He's like Lizzo. Oh, Lizzo plays flute? Yeah, that's her big thing. Oh, wow. His name is Hizzo, though. (laughs) (laughs) At number six, Chris Davis says... He was out here just looking for America, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Number five, Robbie Stillman. J.K. Rowling was bored writing his Care of Magical Creatures class. (laughs) 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 I I bet there's some truth in that one. But she wrote Grubbly Planks, though. Like, she still has to write about the class. True. Yeah, but but all those weird ways that Hagrid pronounces things. She didn't want to write all that. Oh, right, right, right. Number four, I said that he was out filming a sequel to the Fantastic Beasts series. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, from Alex K. he never left. He was in his hut, hibernating after Madame Maxine broke his heart. Oh. So he makes up this story in which Madame Maxine and him are... On the road together, still clearly, totally in love. Number two, he heard some bitch named Dolores was running Hogwarts and wanted none of it. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that would keep me away too. Micah wrote that one. Yeah. <laughs> and here's one that I wrote. No, no, you have to, you have to go. And the number one reason Hagrid was really. I know, I know, I know. Okay, okay. This is great. You got to deliver on this, Eric. I usually shy away from being the dirtiest mind in the room. Uh, listeners under 20 cover your ears and the number one reason Hagrid was really MIA he was climbing Mount Olympus <laughs> wow bow chicka wow care to elaborate wow. Eric nope because nope. if giants are loud then half giants are probably loud as well and they need to be away from everybody so nobody can hear them oh yeah on to the Umbridge suck count. It currently stands at 40. Um, plus one for bothering Hagrid as soon as he got back after months away. Give him some time to chill. Yeah. Next one, questioning why footsteps would be leading to Hagrid's door. 
like he can have friends all right just let him live <laughs> it's okay he has visitors so what <laughs> And the third one was, uh, she didn't let Fang, who's clearly a good boy, lick her face. She she wouldn't accept the kisses. I am with Umbridge on that one. I do not yeah, like too. dogs licking faces. That you, is... you own a dog. So? You don't let Brooklyn lick your face? No, and he doesn't, thank gosh. Uh, it's because he's small, right? Maybe. Mm-hmm. All right, and we do have some threads to connect, some really fun ones that uh, really throw back to the Buckbeak storyline in Prisoner of Azkaban. We can start with McNair's uh, resurgence in this chapter. He was the one who was set to execute Buckbeak in Prisoner of Azkaban. And we learn that he is on the Death Eater's giant recruitment force in Order of the Phoenix, and Hagrid recognizes him in the mountains. Mm. Um, Then I also (laughs) thought it was pretty cute that Hagrid was so surprised that Hermione would act like they would ever do anything dangerous in care of magical creatures, given what happens with Buckbeak in Prisoner of Azkaban. He's sort of very taken aback that she suggests they would do anything dangerous in class. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's very Hagrid. Um, And then also in Prisoner of Azkaban, Hermione is the one who puts together Hagrid's whole defense with the ministry regarding Buckbeak. And now she's vowing to write Hagrid's lesson plans for him and to do anything that it takes to stop Umbridge from firing him. Poor Hermione doing all this for Hagrid. She doesn't get any appreciation for it. Mm. This always happens to women, too. It's like, (laughs) let's just. Nobody recognizes all y'all do. Yep, it's true. You, and with all this, it makes me want to look up when we were talking before about Fang. Like, does Fang take a similar approach to Fudge? In it, it would probably be Chamber of Secrets, right? Not Prisoner of Azkaban, trying to lick his face or do something Ooh, along those lines. That's a good question. Yeah, not that I can recall. Maybe it's all the cats on her. Oh, yeah, no, that's just the cats are on the plates. I'm like, why is why is Fang so interested in Dolores? <laughs> I think Fang's just been darn lonely all these years or all these months. Yeah. Maybe it's her perfume. You know, she's got some. Time for MVP of the week. I'm going to give it to Hagrid for risking his life at Dumbledore's request. I gave it to Hermione because she asks Hagrid if he had new information about his mother. Mm. Very astute. I'll give it to Madame Maxime for accompanying Hagrid on this journey, creating that, you know, international bond uh, between, <laughs> well, I wasn't going there, Andrew, sure. but if, if you want me to. Um, and also, you know, quick wand work. She had some uh, yeah. some spells she casts in uh, in this chapter. We didn't touch on that. but And I'm giving mine to Fang for not only being a good boy, but also for distracting Umbridge. Mm-hmm. All right. And now let's rename the chapter Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 19. Who is the ugliest of them all? <laughs> <laughs> Reference to the Gerg. I named uh, mine Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 19. <laughs> Long 
longest uh, chapter title. title ever. Yeah. <laughs> also, I watch you when you are sleeping. That's yeah, yeah, just like they do to the Giants. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think JK. I think Rowling was on a Bangles kick when she wrote this chapter. All right, uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter Nineteen: A Giant Waste of Time. <laughs> <laughs> true, that's my favorite this week. And I went with Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter Nineteen: Tall Tales. Hmm. Like he's lying. Uh-huh. Uh, I-, I think it's like a bit of a a double entendre, like double meaning. You know, they're they met with giants. Right, they're big. Mm-hmm. Met with giants and Hagrid's trying to tell lies. Right. Oh, and the Death Eaters are tailing them. Yep. So Hagrid's tail could refer to the Death Eaters as well. And alliteration. Wow. Just so I just love these chapter titles this week. So much good stuff. If you have any feedback about today's discussion, send it on in. Or if you have a question about Chapter 20, MuggleCast at gmail.com is where you can reach us. You can also send us a voice memo. Just please remember to keep it about a minute long and record in a quiet place. Just use the voice memo app that's built into your phone and then email it to that same address. We also have the contact form on our website, MuggleCast.com. You can just click contact at the top. It's time for Quizage. Last week's question... Where does Hagrid have a disagreement with a vampire? The correct answer was, of course, a pub in Minsk, which is in Belarus. The correct answers were submitted by Lacey, Tara, Meg Scott, Sarah, Count Ravioli, Caleb, Nikki, Jason, Hallowolf, Stacy, Michael Nutt, Eric, and Aurelie. Congratulations to everyone who submitted. Next week's question, who does Neville Longbottom say he saw die that allows him to see the Thestrals. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. We would love your support over at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. If you enjoy what we do, we're glad to hear that. And it's because of support from listeners like you. So just head to patreon.com slash MuggleCast, pledge today, and you will get instant access to years of benefits, including many installments of bonus MuggleCast. And if you pledge at that Dumbledore's Army level or higher, you will be eligible for this year's physical gift. I think that does it for this week's episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. Uh, Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.